Chapter 9 of the Marquise de Villemer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lucy Kempton. The Marquise de Villemer by Georges Sand. Translated by Ralph Keeler. Chapter 9. When at the end of another week the Duke also arrived, he was surprised by this state of affairs. Deeply touched by his brother's letter from Polignac, but believing that he detected in him rather a struggle against himself than a resolution actually formed, his grace had intentionally delayed his appearance, so as to give time to the isolation and freedom of the country to work upon the two hearts which he believed to have been moved by his words, and which he expected to find in accord. He had not foreseen the absence of coquetry or imagination on the part of Caroline, the real dismay, serious resistance, internal combat on the part of the Marquise. How is this now? the Duke asked of himself, as he saw that even their friendly disposition one for the other seemed to have disappeared. Is it a sense of morality that has so soon quenched the fire? Has my brother been making an abortive attempt? Is his access of sadness from fear or spite? Is the girl a prude? No. Ambitious? No. The Marquis will not know how to explain himself. Perhaps he has kept all the powers of his mind for his books, when he should have bestowed them in the service of his growing passion. The Duke, nevertheless, did not hasten to discover the truth. He was the prey of conflicting resolutions. He had succeeded in gaining a thorough knowledge of the state of the Marquise's affairs. The income of the latter was barely 30,000 francs, 12,000 of which were given over as a pension to his spendthrift brother. The rest was applied almost entirely to the support and service of the Marchioness, and the Marquise himself lived in his own house without making any more expense there on his private account than if he had been an unobtrusive guest. The Duke was wounded by this state of affairs, which he had brought about, and of which the Marquise did not appear to think at all. His grace had endured his own ruin in the most brilliant manner. He had shown himself a veritable grandee, and if he had lost many companions of his pleasures, he had recognised many faithful friends. He had grown in the opinion of the world, and he was forgiven the trouble and scandal he had caused in more than one family, when he was seen to accept, with courage and spirit, the expiation of his wild and reckless life. He had thus undauntedly assumed the part which was hereafter proper for him, but there was a feeling of penitence which disturbed his mental balance, and about which he agitated himself, with less clearness of sight and strength of resolution, than he would have done if it had been a matter concerning only himself. Thoroughly sincere and well disposed in his lack of reason, he cast about him for the means of making his brother happy. Sometimes he persuaded himself that love should be introduced into Urban's life of meditation and competence. At other times he thought it his duty to inspire the Marquise with ambition, dealing sharply with his repugnances and trying once more to suggest to him the idea of a great marriage. This latter was also the dream of the Marchioness, one that had always been dear to her and she now gave herself up to it more than ever, believing that her maternal enthusiasm at the generosity of the Marquise would be shared by some accomplished heiress. 
she confided to the Duke that she was in treaty with her friend, the Duchess de Dunière, about marrying the Marquise to a Zentai, an orphan, very rich and reputed beautiful, who was weary of her studies at the convent, and who nevertheless was very exacting as to merit and quality. From all indications the thing was possible, but it was necessary that Urbain should favour it, and he did not favour it, saying that he should never marry if the occasion did not come to find him, and that he was the last man in the world to go and see an unknown woman with the intention of pleasing her. "'Try then, my son,' said the Marchioness to the Duke the day after his arrival, to cure him of that wild timidity. As for me, it is a sheer waste of words. The Duke undertook the task, and found his brother uncertain, careless, not saying no, but refusing to take any step in the matter, and observing merely that it was necessary to wait for the chance which might lead him to meet the person, that, if she pleased him, he would afterward endeavour to learn whether she had no dislike for him. Nothing could be done just then, since they were in the country. There was no hurry about it, he was not more unhappy than usual, and he had a great deal of work to do. The Marchioness grew impatient at this compromising with time, and continued to write, taking the Duke for secretary in this affair, which was not in Caroline's department. The Duke, seeing clearly that for six whole months this marriage would not advance one step, returned to the idea of bringing about a temporary diversion of his brother's mind by a country romance. The heroine was at hand, and she was charming. She was suffering, perhaps, a little from the very apparent coldness of Monsieur de Villemere. The Duke devoted himself to learning the cause of this coldness. He failed utterly. The Marquise was inscrutable. His brother's questions seemed to astonish him. The fact is that the idea of making love to Mademoiselle de Saint-Genais had never entered his mind. He would have made it a very grave case of conscience with himself, and he did not compound with his conscience. He had insensibly submitted to the strong and real attraction of Caroline, given himself up to it unreservedly. Then his brother, in seeking to excite his jealousy, had caused him to discover a more pronounced inclination in this sympathy without a name. He had suffered terribly for some days. He had demanded of himself if he were free, and he considered himself placed between a mother who desired him to make an ambitious marriage and a brother to whom he owed the wreck of his fortune. He had foreseen, besides, invincible resistance in the proud scruples of Mademoiselle de Saint-Genais. He already knew enough of her character to be certain that she would never consent to come between his mother and himself. Equally resolved not to commit the folly of being uselessly importunate, and to be guilty of the baseness of betraying the good faith of a fine soul, he worked and struggled to conquer himself, and appeared to have succeeded miraculously. He played his part so well that the Duke was deceived by it. Such courage and delicacy exceeded perhaps the notion which the latter had formed of a duty of this kind. I have been mistaken, he thought. My brother is absorbed in the study of history. It is of his book that I must speak to him. Thereafter, the Duke demanded of himself in what way he could employ his own imagination for the next six months of comparative inaction. Hunting, reading novels, talking with his mother, composing a few ballads. These were hardly sufficient for so fantastic a spirit. And, naturally, he began to think of Caroline as the only person 
who could throw a little poetry and romance about his life. He had decided to pass the half of the year at Seval, and that was a noble resolution for a man who did not like the country except with a great establishment. He intended, by living on the most modest footing with his brother for six months of every year, to refuse 6,000 francs of his yearly allowance, and, if the Marquise should reject the proffered sacrifice, he purposed to employ that sum in restoring and repairing the manor-house. But he must have a little flirtation to crown all this virtue, and there stopped the virtue of the brave duke. "'How shall I do?' said he to himself, "'now that I have pledged my word to her, "'as well as to my mother, to have nothing of the kind to do with her. "'There is but one way, simpler, perhaps, "'than all the ordinary and worn-out ways. "'That is, to pay her little attentions, "'but with the appearance of entire disinterestedness. "'Respect without gallantry, a friendly regard, perfectly frank, "'and which will inspire her with real confidence.' Since, with all this, I am in no way prevented from being as clever and gracious as I can be, and as perfectly amiable and devoted as I should be in showing my pretensions, it is very probable that she will be sensible of them, and that, of her own accord, she will relieve me little by little of my oath. A woman is always astonished that at the end of two or three months of affectionate intimacy one does not say a word of love to her, and then she will find it tedious here too since my brother's eyes speak to her no longer. Well, we will see. It will indeed be something quite new and spicy to conquer a heart which is held in alarm, without seeming to do it, and to bring about a capitulation without seeming to have been a besieger. I have seen this sort of artifice practised with coquettes and prudes, but I am curious to see how Mademoiselle de Saint-Genet, who is neither coquette nor prude, will undertake to bring about this evolution. Thus occupied by a puerility of self-conceit, the Duke no longer gave way to tedium. He had never liked a brutal debauch, and his dissoluteness had always preserved a certain stamp of elegance. He had used and abused so much of life that he was sufficiently used up himself to make self-restraint no very difficult matter. He had said he was not sorry to renew for himself his health and youth and even at times he flattered himself that he had perhaps found again the youth of the heart, of which his manners and language had been able to keep up the appearance. From the fact that his brain was still busy upon a perverse romance, he concluded that he could still be romantic. He manoeuvred so skilfully that Mademoiselle de Saint-Genet had the modesty to be completely deceived by his feigned honesty. Seeing that he never sought to be alone with her, she no longer avoided him, and while, without losing her from his eyes, he brought about, in the most natural and apparently the least foreseen ways, occasions to meet her in her walks. He took his advantage of these meetings by appearing not at all desirous to prolong them, and by himself withdrawing with an air of discretion, and just the shade of regret which reconciled amiable politeness with provoking indifference. He employed all this art without Caroline's having the least suspicion of it, her own frankness prevented her from divining a plan of that nature. In the course of a week she was as much at her ease with him as if she had never mistrusted him, and she wrote to Madame Herdebert, The Duke is greatly changed for the better since the family event which brought him to himself, or indeed he never merited the accusations of Madame de D. The latter perhaps is the truth, 
for I cannot believe that a man of such refined manners and sentiments has ever desired to ruin a woman for the sole pleasure of having a victim to boast of. She, Madame de D, maintained that he has done so with all his conquests, out of sheer libertinism and vanity. Libertinism. I am not too sure that I know what this is, in the life of a man of high rank. I have lived among virtuous people, and all I have seen of debauchery has been among poor labourers, who lose their reason in wine and beat their wives in paroxysms of mortal frenzy. If the vice of great lords consists in compromising the women of society, there must be many women of society who easily allow themselves to be compromised, since so great a number of victims has been attributed to the Duc d'Aleria. For my part, I do not see that he concerns himself with women at all, and I never hear him speak ill of any woman in particular. Quite the contrary, he praises virtue and declares that he believes in it. He seems never to have had anything in the way of perfidy to reproach himself with, because he establishes a very marked difference between those who consent to be ruined and those who do not consent to it. I do not know if he is imposing upon me, but he would appear to have loved with respect and sincerity. Neither his mother nor his brother seems to doubt that, and I certainly like to believe that this is a sincere but inconstant nature, which it was necessary to be very credulous or very vain to have hoped to fix upon one object. That he has been liberal in excess, a gamester, forgetful of his duty to his family, intoxicated with luxury and with trivial pursuits unworthy of a serious man, I do not doubt, and it is in these things that I see the feebleness of his judgment and his vanity. But they are all the faults and misfortunes of education, and of a life which began in too much privilege. His class is not usually made aware of duty by necessity, being taught everything that is just the opposite of providence and economy. Did not our own poor father ruin himself too? And who would dare say he was to blame for it? As to foppishness or self-conceit in the Duke, after seeking for it patiently I have not detected the least trace. His conduct here is as unaffected as that of a country squire. He goes in the plainest and cheapest attire and wins all hearts by his good nature and simplicity. He never makes the slightest allusion to his past triumphs and he never boasts of any of his gifts, which are nevertheless real, for he is charmingly clever, he is always handsome, he sings delightfully, and even composes a little, not very well, but with a certain elegance. He talks marvellously well, though not very profoundly, for he has read or retained only things of a light nature. But he confesses this with candour, and serious topics are far from being displeasing to him, since he questions his brother on every subject, and listened to him intelligently and respectfully. As regards the latter, he is always the same spotless mirror, the model of all the virtues and modesty itself. He is very busy upon a great historical work of which his brother says marvellous things, and that does not astonish me. Nature would have been very illogical if she had denied him the faculty of expressing the world of weighty ideas and true sentiments with which she has endowed his soul. He carries about with him a sort of religious meditation of his work, which causes him to be more reserved with me, and more communicative with his mother and brother than he used to be. I rejoice for them, and as to myself I am not offended. It is very natural that he should not expect any light upon such grave subjects from me, and that he should be led to question persons who are more mature 
and who are better instructed in the science of human actions. At Paris, he manifested a good deal of interest in me, especially the day when his brother thought himself at liberty to tease me. But because he has not since showed that particular interest, I have not come to the conclusion that it no longer exists, and that it may not on occasion be again apparent. There will be, however, no such future occasion, since the Duke has so thoroughly improved, but I shall not be the less grateful for being able to count upon so estimable a protector. We see that, if Caroline was really affected by the change in the manner of Monsieur de Villemer, she was so without knowing it herself, and without wanting to yield to a vague wound. Her woman's self-love did not enter into the question at all. She felt sure that she had done nothing to forfeit his esteem, and as she did not expect or desire anything more, she attributed everything to a worthy preoccupation. Nevertheless, in spite of all her efforts, she began to feel that the time passed tediously with her. She was careful not to write this fact to her sister, who could have imparted no new courage, and whose letters were indeed always loving, yet full of condoling and complaints about her absence and the manner of her self-sacrifice. Caroline humoured this tender and timid soul, for whom she had habitually exerted a maternal care, and whom she forced herself to sustain by appearing always as strong and as much at ease as the force of her character enabled her generally to be. But she had her hours of profound weariness, in which her heart was oppressed with a dread of being alone. Although she was more of a captive, more really subjected during a part of the day than she had ever been in her family, she had her mornings and the last hour of the night in which to taste the austerity of solitude and to question herself of her own destiny, a dangerous liberty which she had never been allowed when she had four children and a necessitous household upon her hands. At times she took refuge in certain poetical musings and found in them an enchanting tenderness, at times, too, a bitterness without cause and without aim made nature hateful to her, her walks fatiguing and sleep oppressive. She struggled with herself courageously, but these attacks of melancholy did not escape the eager attention of the Duke d'Aleria. He remarked on certain days a bluish shade which made her eyes look sunken, and a sort of involuntary resistance in the muscles of her face when she smiled. He thought that the hour was approaching, and he proceeded with the plan which he had adopted. He was more kind and more attentive, and when he saw that she recognised the change in his manner, he hastened to remind her delicately that love had nothing to do with it. This grand game, however, was all to no purpose. Caroline was so simple-natured that all skill of this kind could hardly fail to be lost on her. When the Duke surrounded her with delicate and charming attentions, she attributed them to his friendship, and when he endeavoured to goad her on by withdrawing them, she rejoiced the more that they sprang only from friendship. The Duke's self-esteem prevented him from seeing clearly in this second phase of his enterprise. Confidence had come, but in reality Caroline might open her eyes with no other pain than that of profound astonishment and pitying disdain. The Duke hoped every returning day to see the growth of spite or impatience in her, he could, however, detect only a little sadness, for which he ingenuously gave himself the credit, and which was mildly pleasurable, though by no means satisfactory to him. I would have believed her more sensitive, thought he. There is a trifle of torpidity in her sorrow, and more mildness than warmth. Gradually this mildness charmed him. 
He had never seen anything equal to this supposed resignation. He saw in it a hidden modesty, a hopelessness of pleasing, a tender submission, which deeply touched him. She is good above all others, he said to himself again, good as an angel. One could be very happy with that woman. She would be so grateful and so little disposed to quarrel. Truly, she does not know what it is to cause suffering. She keeps it all for herself. By dint of waiting for his prey, the Duke found himself fascinated, and the feeling grew upon him. He was forced to acknowledge that he was ill at ease in her presence, and that his own cruelty troubled him a great deal. At the end of a month he began to lose patience, and to say to himself that he must hasten the catastrophe, but that all at once appeared to him extremely difficult. Caroline yet had too much virtue in his eyes to permit him to forfeit his word, for in being abrupt he might lose everything. Entering his mother's apartment one day, the Duke said, I have just been greatly amusing myself riding one of your farm colts. He resembles a wild boar and a trotting errand boy at the same time. He has fire and speed, and is very gentle besides. Mademoiselle de Saint-Genais might ride him if she happens to be fond of the exercise. I am very fond of it, she replied. My father required it of me and I was not grieved to satisfy him in that regard. Then I will wager you are an excellent rider. No, I can sit upright and have a nimble hand, like all women. Like all women who ride well, for generally women are nervous and would like to lead men and horses after the same fashion, but that is not your character. As far as men are concerned, I know nothing at all about it. I have never attempted to lead anyone. Oh, you will attempt that too some day. It is not probable. No, said the Marchioness, it is not probable. She does not wish to marry, and in her position she is greatly in the right. Oh, certainly, rejoined the Duke. Marriage without fortune must be hell. He looked at Caroline to see if she were moved by such a declaration. She was quite passive. She had renounced marriage sincerely and irrevocably. The Duke, wishing to judge whether she was armed against the idea of an irreparable fault, added, in order to compromise nothing too gravely, Yes, it must be a hell except in the case of a great passion which gives the heroism to undergo everything. Caroline was still just as calm and apparently a stranger to the question. Ah, oh, my son, what nonsense are you preaching now? There are days when you talk like a child. But you know well enough that I am very much of a child, said the Duke and I hope to be so for a long time to come. It is being altogether too much so to rest the chances of happiness in misery, said the Marchioness, who courted discussion. There is no such thing. Misery kills all, even love. Is that your opinion, Mademoiselle de Saint-Genais? rejoined the Duke. Oh, I have no opinion on the subject, she replied. I know nothing of life beyond a certain limit, but I should be led in this instance to believe with your mother rather than with you. I have known misery, and if I have suffered, it was in seeing its weight upon those whom I loved. There is no need, therefore, of extending and complicating one's life when it is already so perplexing. That would be to go in search of despair. Bless me, everything is relative, exclaimed the Duke. That which is the misery of some is the opulence of others. Would you not be very rich with an income of twelve thousand francs? Certainly, replied Caroline, without remembering, and perhaps even without knowing, that to be the exact amount of her question as yearly allowance. Well then, continued the Duke, 
who endeavoured to inspire a hope with one word that he might crush it with the next, still intent upon his plan of agitating this placid or timid heart. If any one should offer you such a modest competence as that, together with a sincere love? I could not accept, Caroline rejoined. I have four children to support and rear. No husband would accept such a past as that. She is charming, cried the marchioness. She speaks of her past like a widow. Ah, I did not speak of the widow, my poor sister. With myself and an old woman servant who is attached to us and who shall share the last morsel of bread in the house, we are seven, neither more nor less. Now do you know the young man to marry with his twelve thousand francs a year? I think decidedly he would make a very bad bargain. Caroline always spoke of her situation with an unaffected cheerfulness, which showed the sincerity of her nature. Well, in point of fact, you are right, said the Duke. You will get through life better all alone with your fine, brave spirit. I believe, indeed, that you and I are the only persons in the world who are really philosophers. I regard poverty as nothing when one is responsible only to his own free will, and I must say that I was never before so happy as I am now. So much the better, my son, said the Marchioness, with an almost imperceptible shade of reproach, which the Duke, however, perceived in an instant, for he hastened to add, I shall be completely happy the day my brother makes the marriage in question, and he will make it, will he not, dear mother? Caroline was on the point of going to examine the clock. No, no, it is not slow, it is just right, said the Marchioness. We have no secrets from you hereafter, dear little one and you must know that I have today received good news relative to a great project which I have for my son. If I have not made use of your pretty hand in negotiating this matter, it is for reasons altogether different from that of distrust. Here, read us this letter, of which my elder son as yet knows nothing. Caroline would have gladly refrained from looking thus in advance into the secrets of the family, and especially into those of the Marquise. She hesitated. Monsieur de Villemaire is not here, she said. I do not know that he, for his part, will approve of the entire confidence with which you honour me. Yes, he will, certainly, answered the Marchioness. If I had a doubt of it, I would not beg you to read it. Come now, begin, my dear. There was nothing further to be said to the Marchioness. Caroline read as follows. Yes, dear friend, it must and will succeed. True, the fortune of Mademoiselle de X is upward of four millions at least, but she knows it, and is no prouder on that account. On the contrary, after a new attempt on my part, she said to me no later than this morning, You are right, dear godmother, I have the power and the privilege to enrich a man of true merit. All you tell me of your friend's son gives me an exalted idea of him. Let me complete the time of my mourning at the convent, and I will consent to see him at your house the coming autumn. It is well understood that in all this affair I have named no one, but your history and that of your two sons are so well known that my dear Diana has divined. I did not think I ought to let pass the chance to make the excellent conduct of the Marquise do valuable service in the attainment of our object. The Duke, his brother, has himself proclaimed it everywhere, and with a feeling which does him honour. Do not, therefore, prolong your retreat at Seval too far into the bad season. Diana must not see too much society before the interview. Society takes away, even from the most candid natures, that first freshness of faith and generosity which I admire, 
and which I do my best to preserve in my noble godchild. You will continue my work, I know, when she is your daughter, my worthy friend. It is my most honest wish to see your dear son recover the place in the world which is his due. To have lost it without a frown is fine in him, and the only finer thing which a person of lineage can do is to restore it to him. It is the duty of the daughters of gentle blood to give these grand examples of pride to the upstarts of the day, and as I am one of these daughters, I shall be satisfied with nothing short of success in this matter, putting all my heart in it, all my religion, all my devotion for you. Duchesse de Dunière, née de Fontarc. The Duke could have scrutinised Caroline after the reading of this letter, in which her voice never once grew weak. He would not have detected in her the least effort, the least personal feeling which was not in harmony with the satisfaction felt by himself. But he never thought of observing her. In presence of a family affair so important, poor Caroline held a place quite secondary and accidental in his mind, and he would have reproached himself for thinking of her at all when he saw in the future of his brother the providential reparation of the evil which he had caused. Yes, he cried joyfully, kissing the hands of his mother. Yes, you will be happy again, and I shall cease to blush. My brother shall be the man, the head of the family. The whole world shall know his rare worth, for without fortune, in the eyes of the majority, talent and virtue are not sufficient. He will then be master of everything, this dear brother." glory, honour, credit, power, and all in spite of those little fine gentlemen of the citizen court, and without bending at all before the pretended necessities of politics. Mother, have you shown this letter to Urbain? Yes, my son, to be sure. And he is satisfied? Things are already so far under way. The lady prepossessed in his favour, accepting in advance, and asking only to see him. Yes, my friend, he has promised to allow himself to be introduced. "'Victory!' cried the Duke. "'Then let us be gay. "'Let us do something foolish. "'I want to jump up to the ceiling. "'I want to embrace someone. "'It makes no matter whom. "'Dear Mamma, will you let me go and embrace my brother?' "'Yes, but do not congratulate him too much. "'He is startled at anything new. "'You understand?' "'Oh, never fear. "'I know him.' "'And the Duke, still very nimble, "'in spite of his tendency to stoutness "'and the more or less damaged state of his joints,' went out gambling like a schoolboy. End of chapter 9